Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here on this beautiful December day. If we have not met before, my name is Austin Fisher. I serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're, you're brand new here, you've been here once, twice, three times even, uh, we are really glad that you joined us. It wasn't too long ago for a lot of us that we went to a church for the first time. And so we hope that you feel loved, that you feel welcomed, that you feel wanted, because you are. Uh, today we are starting <clears throat> our new series called Advent, Awaiting the King. Uh, and if you're kind of new to this Christianity thing, or maybe even if, if you're not new to it, you might wonder what this word Advent has to do with Christmas, right? So quick kind of recap on Advent and, and what it means. The word Advent comes from this Latin word Adventus, which is itself a translation of the Greek word parousia, which is often used in the New Testament of Scripture to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Advent from Adventus, from Perusia, which refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Advent is this season in which Christians all over the world, and that's what's so cool about this, right? Christians all over the world are doing this right now with us, where we look back to the original coming of Christ into the world at Bethlehem. And then we also look forward to the future coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. Advent is this season where we all remember that once upon a time, God came to us. And then in a future time, God is going to come to us again. And in this time, in between Jesus' past and future comings, God is with us in quiet but very powerful ways, teaching us to become people who know how to take the light of the gospel out into a wonderful but very sad and very broken world. So that's what Advent is. That's when we celebrate this time of the year. And then also... Before we jump into our text for this morning, I want to take a few moments to just talk to us about time. I'll take a little bit of time to talk to you about time. Now, one of our elders, Mark Zorneman, I think he's in here somewhere this morning, uh, he recently told me that if he could see somebody's bank statement and their calendar, he would know just about everything he needed to know about them. Their bank statement and their calendar. Now, I happen to think that Mark is is right, and not just because he's he's one of our elders. Uh, I think he's quite obviously right, and while we will leave the bank statements out of it this morning so you can breathe a collective sigh of relief, we will not be passing the bank statements forward, I do want to talk to you about our calendars for a second. So what does your calendar say about you? What does it say about your priorities? If somebody were to get their hands on your calendar... What would they learn about you from the way you structure and spend your time? Because they definitely learn something about you. Because there's perhaps nothing more important about you than the way you structure and spend your time. Now I have, over the last few years, come under the conviction that um, there are few things that we modern Christians struggle with more than this, that we no longer let the church set our calendars. I know that might sound weird, and so here's what I mean. Uh, if, if your calendar is anything like mine, then it is filled with job requirements, cultural holidays, and family obligations. Right? My calendar is filled with quarterly evaluations and baseball tournaments and vacations and whatever. Uh, and so, so frequently what happens is we get to the end of these things, and those things in and of themselves, they're fine. When they're kept in their proper place, they're fine. But one of the things we really, really struggle with is keeping things in their proper place. So quite often what happens is, is we get to the end of December. And if you're anything like me, you get to the end of December and you think to yourself, well, I survived. <laughs> you know, like I got all the stuff bought. I needed to get bought. I got most of the stuff turned in. I saw most of the family members I needed to see. I got a lot of stuff done. I survived. But I just, I just feel like I missed something really, really important. I feel like I was so close to something so sacred. I just felt it. But somehow, 
I missed it. And I know I missed it. And so if that's you, and you're tired of getting to the end of December, year after year after year after year, and thinking to yourself, man, I was so close, but somehow I missed it. If that's you, well, hear me out. Maybe it's time that you let somebody besides you structure your time. Maybe it's time that you submitted your time to the deep and ancient wisdom of the church. And that's what we want to challenge you to do in this Advent season. Don't get so caught up in office parties and friends and gift exchanges and yada, yada, yada that you miss Advent, that you miss preparing your heart for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And you being here this morning and celebrating Advent with us is a really important step in that direction. All right, so let's keep it up. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Uh, always encourage you to bring your Bible with you. If you can, we'll also have it on the screen. And then we have some hard copies of the Bible in front of the sound booth that you're also welcome to grab and take and keep. So Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Story about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now in those days, John the Baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. For this is the one who is referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, he quotes Isaiah 40 here, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make way, make ready the way of the Lord and you better make his path straight. Now John himself, he had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, you better bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't suppose that you can just say to yourself, Well, we have Abraham for our father, for I'm telling you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. So John the Baptist is uh, the key figure in our Advent text for today, and he always plays a very important role during the season of Advent. Because in the biblical story, John the Baptist is the one who is sent by God to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And he's just a ridiculous figure, isn't he? Now here's a 15th century sketching of him. He just killed an animal, you know, cut it in half, put it over his head. He walks around eating bugs, locusts, etc. Uh, as the Gospel of Matthew tells it, he just, he just like wanders out into the wilderness one day, man. Just goes out to the wilderness and he starts telling everybody that they better straighten up because God was coming for a judgment soon and it wasn't going to be pretty. And so here's this wild man out in the wilderness, okay, eating bugs, preaching hellfire and brimstone. And for whatever reason, these huge crowds of people are going out to see him and hear his grumpy, judgmental message. 
And I don't know about you, but like if somebody told me, hey, Austin, there's this, this really weird, grumpy man out in Miller Springs Park who eats bugs and, and yells at people and tells them to confess their sins, I don't think I'd go out for a visit. Would you? I don't think you would. We wouldn't like load the Fisher family up in the van, you know, and say, hey, we're going to go out to Miller Springs to get yelled at by this really weird man who eats bugs. My boys would think that part was cool. And so what are we missing here, you know? Like why would these people, these huge crowds of people, go out into the wilderness to get yelled at by this mean, mean man who wants to make them confess their sins and then take a bath in a dirty river. Well, what you and I tend to miss is that John the Baptist's seemingly bizarre actions are not the, uh, you know, uh, misguided eccentricities of some sort of lunatic madman, but rather they are the very calculated deeds of one of Israel's true prophets. John goes out to the wilderness And he eats bugs and he preaches judgment and repentance because he is fulfilling a prophecy that is found in the very last words of the Old Testament, the very last paragraph of the Old Testament. Okay, this is Malachi 4, starting in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet for the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I am Malachi 4, 1 through 6. And after reading Malachi, we can now understand at least a little bit that what we tend to miss Uh, And what the first century people here in the text would not have missed is that John the Baptist is clearly meant to be some kind of second coming of Elijah. One of Israel's greatest prophets, his story is told in 1 and 2 Kings. And according to legend, uh, Elijah didn't die, but he was actually taken up in a whirlwind. Right, in 2 Kings 1. And also, according to legend, Elijah would one day return, and his return would mark that the great and terrible day of the Lord was upon us, that God was coming for a visit, a great and terrible visit, as Malachi says it. And so huge crowds of people are going out to John to confess their sins and be baptized because they know that the prophecies are coming true and God is returning to Israel for a visit. And John gladly baptizes almost everybody who comes out to him. And I say almost everybody because there are these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two dominant religious groups in that time. And John's not really very happy about baptizing them. We don't know if he ends up doing it or not, but we know he's not happy about it. And you just really can't make this up, okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're like a really big deal. These are important people in the community. They have traveled out to the wilderness to let mean, grumpy John yell at them, tell them to confess their sins. They want to do that. They want to be baptized. And John's response to all this is to go, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can baptize you. They're like, what? Are you, do you know who we are? We walked all the way out in the wilderness to let you yell at us, man. Like, what do you mean you're not going to baptize us? Why would you not baptize us? And he's like, well, let me think of how I could put this uh, politely. I, I'm not sure about baptizing you because you're, uh, you're a brood of vipers. You're, you're slimy, duplicitous snakes. That's why I don't know if I can baptize you. And can you imagine this? Can you imagine like coming to see me, not even out in the wilderness, right, but just over here in my office, you know, Austin, I would love to be baptized, you know, here's my story, I think it'd be great, I want to be baptized, and I go, yeah, I don't know, man. (laughs) Why would you not baptize me, Austin? Well, because you're a snake. (laughs) And I look forward to your, you know, one-star review on Facebook, but the answer is still no. Um, John, 
is just this ruthless, ruthless guy. And yet, if we can read between the lines a little bit here, we can see that John's ruthlessness, and he is one ruthless dude, is motivated by a very deep and severe kindness. Right? Let's try to flesh this out a little bit. So my youngest son, Davis, he's, he's almost three at this point. In a couple weeks, he'll be three. And he has developed this like uncanny ability to avoid discipline. It's, it's like it's a spiritual gift that the Lord gave him. I'm not kidding. And I'll do my best to, to explain it because it's kind of tricky. Um, I'll see him do something wrong, and so I will go to reprimand him, correct his behavior. Um, and instead of getting mad or sad, which is what most kids do when you reprimand them, it's what my oldest son does. Instead of getting mad or sad, Davis just immediately apologizes and flashes you the biggest smile you have ever seen. Right? And so the first few times he did this, we were like, oh, well, that was easy. <laughs> like, Good talk, buddy. Uh, what, what's all this parenting stuff about? We apparently have raised the most repentant child in the history of the world, and we're the best parents in the history of the world. We'll write a book about it, Disciplining Kid the Fisher Way. Uh, and so we thought it would be this fantastic thing. But what we've come to realize is that Davis has figured out that when he's being reprimanded, if he will just immediately roll over and apologize and smile, he will then be you know, released back out into the wild so he can continue his hell-raising ways. Uh, for example... He's recently developed a bit of a potty mouth from his mother, no doubt. Um, wasn't me. And when he gets mad at his older brother, uh, his phrase of choice at this point is to call him um, a poo-poo butt. Yeah, I guess it could be worse. Uh, you can tell it's his mother. <laughs> so the other day I'm in the kitchen and the boys are in the living room and they're fighting over a toy as is pretty par for the course in our house. And I hear Davis say, in one uninterrupted breath to his older brother Wyatt, you're a poo-poo butt, I'm sorry. <laughs> there, was no, there was no comma, there was no semicolon, there was not an M dash, there was not a colon, you're a poo-poo butt, I'm sorry. It was like one uninterrupted phrase. It was like he thought he could say whatever he wanted in the first half of the sentence. So long as the second half of the sentence was, I'm sorry. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, it absolutely does remind me of Ricky Bobby. You know what I'm saying? You know <laughs> <laughs> I said it with all due respect. That, no, that doesn't mean you get to say what you want to say. Sure, 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 no, no, it doesn't mean that. It's always good to work Ricky into a sermon when you can. Um... And so what I had to teach my son in that moment, the same thing that John the Baptist is trying to teach the Pharisees and Sadducees in that moment there in Matthew 3, is that repentance does not mean being sorry. Right? Let's just think in for it. Repentance, it doesn't mean being sorry. Repentance doesn't mean that you feel bad or that you feel guilty or whatever. No, no. Repentance, literally metanoia in Greek, means that you literally turn around. And you start walking in a different direction. That's what repentance means. Repentance means you reject an old way of thinking, feeling, doing, being in the world so that you can embrace a new way of thinking, feeling, doing, being in the world. And so when John refuses or when he says he's not very happy about baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's because he knows they have no real desire to repent. He knows they still cling to the notion that their religious heritage is all that they need. We have Abraham as our father, or we've been Christians for generations. We've gone to this church forever. He knows that all their actions are nothing. Hollow, I'm sorry. 
And so with honestly violent, vivid imagery, John says, hey, here's what's going on here, man. The axe, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You know what axes do to trees? <laughs> and any tree that does not bear fruit is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> The man who was sent to prepare us for the coming of our Lord, John the Baptist, was one severe, ruthless man who came preaching repentance and the judgment of God. Which ought to make a little bit of sense because if if you've read scripture, you've probably noticed that any time it talks about God coming, it's usually associated with God's judgment. Anytime God visits, judgment is usually involved. I'm just going to give you a brief little sampling here from the minor prophets. Those are those short little prophetic books at the end of your Old Testament. We'll just do three of them. This is Joel, Joel 1, 14 through 15. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn, sad assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord. And you cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Amos 5. 18 through 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, you better be careful because what purpose will that day be to you? It's going to be darkness. It's not going to be light. It'll be like when a man flees from a lion. That's a bad day. And a bear meets him. Or he goes home, having escaped the lion and the bear, leans against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Finally, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 17. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In that day, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified city and the high corner towers. Because I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So yeah, um, the prophets here, the prophets were pretty clear that God was coming again for a judgment. And that it was going to be a very painful visit, a great and terrible day. And, and this is the part that we modern people really, really struggle with. This coming judgment of God was and is a great and precious gift. In fact, the judgment of God is the love of God when it is translated into a broken and sinful world. Let's flesh this out a little bit. The judgment of God, it is the love of God. It's just what it looks like when it gets translated into a broken world. So if I were to hear my my two-year-old call someone a poo-poo butt, and I just let him get away with it. I didn't say anything. I didn't reprimand him. Would I be a good and kind father? Would I be a good and kind father? Yeah. Of course I wouldn't. I'd be an unkind and irresponsible father who didn't love my little boy enough to help him find healthier ways to deal with his anger. You know? I'd be an unkind and irresponsible father who didn't love the world enough, who didn't love my neighbors enough to spare them a toddler who thinks verbal harassment is an acceptable form of conflict resolution. You know? <laughs> And so I discipline my son, which means I judge his behavior because I love him. And I know it's not good for him to be somebody who walks around wanting to call people poo-poo butts. You know, I know it will not go well for him one day if he calls his boss a poo-poo butt. In other words, 
It's not that sometimes I love my son and then sometimes I judge my son. It's that I judge my son because I love him. It's that there is never a moment when I don't love my little boy, even when that love takes the form of judgment and discipline. And what's true of me and my little boy and what's true of my dad and me is true of God and all of God's creatures, every last one of you and every last person on the face of the planet. Now, part of our confusion with judgment is due to the fact that Scripture says a lot of different things about judgment. And while we can't wrap all those things up together neatly here today, here's what is important to understand for our purposes this morning. Scripture is filled with promises of the judgment of God. It is. You can't get away from it. And Jesus is called the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's Acts 10, 42. There's a man who's been appointed, Jesus the Messiah, and he will judge the living and the dead. And Jesus has been appointed to judge the living and the dead because God loves us. Because God loves us too much to let sin ruin us forever. Because God loves us too much to let sin have the last word. And so Jesus is coming, y'all. He is coming. And he will judge us. And you know what that means? It means he will dispossess us of our selfishly gained and hoarded riches. He will. It means that he will expose all of our lies, all of my lies. It means that he will discipline us for our unfaithfulness. And for all of that, we should say, thanks be to God. Because I don't know about you, but I could use some discipline. I could hear my wife say amen from the nursery. Right? I could use some discipline. And while I am grateful that Jesus has accepted me just as I am, I am just as grateful that Jesus has promised he will not leave me this way. Because I hope this is not the finished version. Am I right? You don't have to say amen to that. Um, I am grateful that Jesus is breaking me of my arrogance and my privilege and my selfishness and my insecurity. I'm grateful that I don't call people a poo-poo butt as much as I used to and would like to. But all that's kind of about me, you know? And so I'm just as grateful that Jesus has promised that he's not going to leave the world like this forever. Jesus will not leave the world unjust, crooked, and broken forever. I'm grateful that Jesus' mother Mary burst into song while Jesus was still in her womb and her song was a proclamation of the coming judgment of God. This is Luke 1. It's a song called the Magnificat. Mary says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me and holy is His name. What has He done? Well, He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. This is a song of what her son, her baby boy would do. He's going to set the world right. He's going to fill the bellies of hungry people and send the rich away empty-handed. This is the judgment of God coming upon the world. And I've been thinking a lot about judgment lately and the, the modern struggle with judgment. And when I say the modern struggle with judgment, what I mean is that modern people like, like you and me, we have this very extreme relationship with judgment where either we avoid it at all costs or we practice it with incredible cruelty and meanness. So either we avoid judgment altogether or we practice it with such meanness that it's really just condemnation and hatred. It's not judgment. And again, you experience this every single day because you've been a part of uh, small groups or relationships or organizations where judgment was avoided at basically all costs, where there was never any accountability or discipline. 
And maybe you thought that group was like nice for a while. You're like, this is so nice. All these people are so nice. This is all so nice. But eventually you realize that while it was nice, it was also unhealthy, dysfunctional, and shallow. Because if you're a part of a group where there is never any judgment, never any discipline or accountability, okay? If you're a part of a group like that, then either you are a part of the first perfect group in the history of the world, in which case, let me know about it, I would love to show up and just ruin it with my mere presence, right? So either that, or, or if there's never any repentance in your group, maybe your group needs to repent of being a shallow, wimpy, dysfunctional waste of everybody's time. And then on the other extreme, you've all been a part of groups where, man, the, the judgment and accountability it was really just condemnation. It's just hatred. It was just meanness. Because there was somebody, usually somebody's, who had uh, appointed themselves as the morality police. You know these people. It's always a self-appointed office. I've checked into this. It's self-appointed. <laughs> they think their spiritual gift is criticizing people. You know what's yours? I, you know, I'm great at encouraging. I'm great at criticizing. <laughs> and those groups are also a shallow, dysfunctional, unbiblical waste of everybody's time. But then between these two extremes, here's what Scripture seems to envision, and to be specific, seems to envision for the church, for the family of God, okay? The church is meant to be a community where irresponsible permissiveness and worldly condemnation are both rejected so that the loving judgment of God reigns. The church is this very rare space in the world, maybe the only space, where we neither irresponsibly permit nor do we heartlessly condemn, but instead we unconditionally accept and then we judge in love. The church is the place where we gladly submit to the loving judgment of God mediated through this big blessed family called the church. Because the judgment of God, capital J, it's coming for all of us at the end of human history, man. Every last person, Scripture is very clear on this. But the judgment of God, small j, it comes for us on a daily basis. Every single day we experience the judgment of God. And this judgment of God, small j, it doesn't come in the form of, you know, lightning bolts from the heavens or terrible diseases that God inflicts upon you or your loved ones. No, when the judgment of God, small j, comes to us on a daily basis, it tends to look more like this. This is my wife. Um, when the judgment of God comes to me on a daily basis, and it does, it usually looks like my spouse. Because my wife loves me, man. She loves me unconditionally. Which means she loves me too much to just permit my ridiculous selfishness. But she also loves me too much to just condemn me and move on, at least so far. Uh, the judgment of God comes to me on a daily basis, through my spouse, through my wife, when she tells me to put down my phone because I'm spending too much time on it. When she asks me who that text message was from late at night. When she tells me that we're having people over for dinner even though I don't feel like it. And I don't always like it in the moment. Actually, I've, I've yet to once like it in the moment. I've never, <laughs> ever liked it in the moment or responded well. <coughs> But in my best moments, I understand that what my wife is doing in those moments, when I feel like she's judging me, she's just trying to mediate God's good and kind and gracious judgment to me. She's just trying to help me become the person I really want to be deep down and who I know God has called me to be. Right? And that's somebody who is present to my family instead of distracted with another screen 
Someone who is faithful to my family instead of tempted to various forms of unfaithfulness. Someone who shares my family with the lost and lonely world instead of hoarding it all for myself and seeing what I can get out of it. And so as much as I don't like being judged, and I do not like being judged, and as much as I try to avoid it at all costs, I have discovered that there's something even better than avoiding judgment. And that is being judged by somebody who loves you. Y'all, there is nothing in this world more precious, more special, more important than being judged by somebody who loves you and loves you unconditionally. Which brings us back to our uh, wild and grumpy Advent God, John the Baptizer, eating bugs, preaching hellfire and brimstone. Earlier, I said that John the Baptizer's ruthlessness was motivated by a very deep and severe kindness that we call the judgment of God. And properly, biblically understood the judgment of God. Y'all, it's not God's mean side. You know, it's not like the stern part of God's personality when God's had enough. No, the judgment of God is the love of God. Period, full stop. The judgment of God is the love of God. It is God's eternal commitment to restore and redeem you in all of creation. And it is a commitment that God takes so seriously that God died in order to keep it. And so as we prepare our hearts for the advent of Jesus Christ, for what Malachi calls the great and terrible day of the Lord's visitation, we gladly embrace it. Because Jesus is not just our judge, but he is also what Karl Barth once called the judge who is judged in our place. And a wonderful phrase. Jesus the Messiah, he's the judge. He's going to judge everybody. But he's also the judge who has been judged in our place. Here's what Bart says. He who knows about myself and others as I never could or should will judge me and them in a way which is infinitely more just than I could ever do. And judge and decide in such a way that it will all be well done. And whatever the decision may be, I have reason to look forward to its disclosure with terror, but mostly with a terror-stricken joy. That good phrase, terror-stricken joy. You know, how, how remarkable is that? The one who will judge all of us. The one whose scripture says is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The one who will judge you. Yes, you and you and you and you. The one who will judge you would rather die for you than condemn you. That's the good news that we call the gospel. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we welcome the season of Advent, we hear the very severe words of John the Baptist. And they awaken us from our apathetic slumber. And they remind us that you have not given us the option of sleepwalking through life. Because judgment is coming. And it comes daily. And it's a great and precious gift. Because it is your commitment to make us whole and to make us holy people. And so God, we welcome your judgment. We do. Because we know our hearts can be crooked. And while straightening them out can be painful at times, you are a gentle and kind physician. And so we trust you and we welcome your discipline because we want to be people that you use to make the world a just and kind place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.